Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Podcast CSA for a very special episode. My name is Caroline, and I am here with, I'll allow him to introduce himself. Hi, everybody. I'm Timothy Anger. I am a clinical neuropsychologist, which is sort of a, a mysterious profession because we have um, specialty training in a couple of different arenas. So my background is um, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology, and then I have two master's degrees in clinical psychology and a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, and what differentiates clinical psychology from psychology is it includes the academic training and the theory-based training, but also the clinical work with patients. So in doing therapy and applying theory and practices and doing assessments and learning psychometrics and actually being able to apply the practices. So it's beyond just um, an educator or like a book smart psychologist. It's someone who is trained to work with individuals. Um, then at the end of my PhD program, I did an internship um, in psychology and neuropsychology at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Richmond, Virginia, Polytrauma Rehab Center. And then I did a two-year postdoctoral fellowship in clinical neuropsychology um, at Cornerstone Neuropsychology, which is a Wake Forest Baptist Health affiliate. And now I'm a faculty member and clinical neuropsychologist at the University of Kentucky College of Medicine in the Department of Neurology. So it's like the, you, the title just gets longer and longer because it sort of shows where you come from. Yes. But in a nutshell, a neuropsychologist is someone who is trained in the clinical applications of psychology, as well as how it pertains to the brain itself. So it's sort of one who examines the brain and behavior relationship and the interplay of those two variables back and forth. Mm. Um, and then additionally, while I was doing that work, as those of us who have graduate trained know, you have to hustle and experience and learn everything you possibly can and get out there. So a large part of my research and training was in forensics when I was in graduate school. And I'm sort of able to parlay that now. And I do some forensics work now in addition to consulting. Interesting. I mean, I and, think so. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Especially for fans of this show, we all right. find it fascinating. This is, this is my niche right here, yes. Yes. Could you also talk to us about what your role as a technical advisor is for the yes. show? Um, so I guess in order to sort of demonstrate how I fit into the puzzle, let me back it up and sort of talk to where my technical expertise comes from. Sure. So because the show is so heavily rooted in not only really neuropsychology, there's a lot of brain behavior relationship stuff, but also there's elements of um, trauma and complex PTSD yep. and medicine and dissociative elements and affective concerns. Um, <clears throat> some of my research and some of my background work is in wellness, burnout, complex PTSD and trauma, and how these variables interact with our own cognition. How does exposure to trauma, especially in the forensic population with police officers and detectives and crime scene techs and forensic anthropologists, how does the long-term exposure, the complex and vicarious trauma exposure impact their mental state, emotional state, their burnout, um, their fatigue, what do we have to do to supplement their wellness? So I have this really unique niche knowledge that we've built over the years of what these variables can look like, 
what they manifest as and how they can present to people, especially working in this field. Mm. So um, when this opportunity came up, it was just sort of a match made in heaven um, in that every time we would turn a page and discuss, oh, but we want to do this with the show, I could say, well, you're not going to believe it, but I actually happen to know about that thing. Um, so that's that's how we got plugged in. And my role in the show is, um, I'll be very clear, I want to throw credit where all the credit is due. The writers, the writers, the writers, the writing room for this show and the EPs, they are incredible. They have, they're on the reins of this thing. So they draft up these ideas and they'll plot out these episodes and draw out these outlines. Um, and then they reach out to myself and some other people when they need the expertise, when they kind of have to say, all right, we want to get this square peg into this round hole. Let's make it first actually possible yep. and then make it look real. And then really, what is the character going to be doing? What would they be feeling? What would they be experiencing? How would they be reacting? Um, and sometimes it's, you know, they're just, I always throw credit back to them and say, I don't know which one of you is an expert at X, Y, or Z this week, whoever wrote this episode, but you, and they just, they always say, no, we're really good at Googling, but don't let them fool you. They, they know what they're doing. Um, so I, sometimes I feel like I'm just here to sort of polish up what they already send my way. Yeah. We constantly on this show are just applauding the creativity and the knowledge base of these writers. Again, no idea how they're able to pull the stuff off, but they know what they're doing and you can see it. And they, they really don't leave any detail um, unexamined. And that's the fascinating thing. The other thing that really blows my mind is verbal parsimony is not really in my wheelhouse. I can't take a hundred words and make it five. Yeah. And I, it, I'm amazed at what they're able to get onto the page in a line or two lines or in a direction. And then what the cast is able to bring out of it and put onto the screen. And sometimes I'll throw back a note and say, oh, you know, the character should do this, that, or this is how they'd behave, or this is how a sociopath acts in this way or whatever. And then we turn it on and I see it and I go, that is, I'm, I feel like I'm in a room with a patient. Absolutely. Yeah. So they are, yeah, they're, they're on it. Exactly. Yeah. This is something that I feel like I, and also Angie and Jess as well are constantly talking about with Tom and the way that he, yep. Oh yeah. You, <laughs> without even saying it, I know that you understand exactly the way through his facial expressions, through his mannerisms, the way his voice will shake or break at different times, he he gets it. And I know that he has done some of his own background research. I know that he had listened to a podcast that was done by um, the daughter of the smiley face killer. And he mm. talks about how that has influenced his portrayal of Malcolm. But even beyond that, just as someone who has experienced complex PTSD myself, I see so much of myself in him and the way that Malcolm is portrayed. And it's just, they they really, I mean, Tom and all of the characters really do this show justice. They do the material and the background and everything, they do it justice and they play it so well. I mean, the amazing thing about what they're doing with, you know, one of the topics they're addressing, which is complex PTSD, yeah. is it's it's complex for a reason. It has yes. any number of variables that can play into it and any number of ways that it can manifest. Mm -hmm. So just the way that he's playing it, and I mean, I don't know from where he's drawing 
this source, but the way that he's presenting it and playing it, he seems to be reaching out to such a wide group of people yes. who can latch on to one or two things that he's presenting and say, oh, this touches home with me. And I yes. got to tell you, I mean, I'll, I'll praise every member of the cast, mm -hmm. but I'll start with Tom and say, um, he is such, he's a student of the craft and I mean, he's giving a master class. I had the, I was very fortunate. I met him one time. He had questions for me and, oh, who's doing it right? And am I doing this the right way? And I was just in awe of, yeah, man, you're doing it right. I, yeah. I really don't know what to tell you. I should be recommending what you're doing to other people. Mm -hmm. um, so he is, it feels like he's perpetually trying to learn and make it better and make it more realistic. And it's impressive because it seems like every week he's pulling it off more perfectly than the week before. Absolutely. I think it's the willingness of the cast and the writers to be vulnerable and go to those places that maybe some other shows would be a little bit hesitant to. They are, they leave no stone unturned. They leave no topic, you know, sort of pushed under the rug or put in a corner. They're willing to go there. And I'm thankful that the fans are giving them the feedback and saying, yes, we do want you to go there. Yes. Because it really does. That's what makes it resonate with so many people. I really should not be paying attention to some of the uh, darker corners of the internet, you know, some of the chat rooms and whatever, but every now and again, I'll get a free 35 seconds and I'll click over. And what makes me happy is when I see people who say the way that X, Y, or Z was portrayed, I feel that I've had that, or I know that, or I get this and whatever. So um, it's really encouraging to see people latching onto it and feeling like they're being represented and that they're being seen. And that's also validating to know that all the work that goes into it is putting forth a genuine product. Yes, absolutely. So um, to sort of switch gears a little bit. Switch them up. Not even. Um, <laughs> were you, so I wanted to know how you initially came on to be an advisor for the show. Was it, you know, one of the EPs who reached out to you or how did you start working on Prodigal Son? Excellent question. I was, I was trying to figure out how I was going to answer this question because I figured you'd ask it. Yes. Um, so as you know, as I know you know, I don't know about Angie and Jess, their background, but you know that graduate school is a thousand years of painful struggle where you don't make any real money and you, you're drinking from the fire hose of knowledge, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, so as I was studying this and sort of getting in my interest in whatever, um, speaking to a lot of colleagues and peers across the community about what things that they do and what their interests are. And one of the people who's sort of in this field with me, there's, I actually have a cousin um, and he is, he's another uh, technical advisor and he works with the show as well. Um, he, uh, for, for over 20 years, I think he was a, a homicide detective in Brooklyn, North Brooklyn. Wow. Uh, our family is originally from New York. So, um, and then when he retired officially from the NYPD, he got into advising and doing things like this. And he's worked on several shows and I, I'm, for intellectual property reasons, I probably can't say what all of them are, but mm -hmm. um, some major programs that people have seen. And he's a, a killer advisor. And he, I think he just sort of mentioned it to somebody because they were saying, hey, we have this show and it's about you know, PTSD and forensics and there's a serial killer and, you know, there's a lot of psychology is, and he's like, hold the phone. You at least need to talk to this guy I know and gave them my phone number. And he texted me, you know, for years we'd been joking about like, oh, you know, wouldn't it be fun to work in the entertainment business? But I, I'm, you know, studying for my major career. 
Um, and he called me and he says, you're going to get a call, answer it, um, talk to them, be yourself and see if there's a match. I felt like I was on a dating game. Um, <laughs> so I spoke with the executive producers and they sort of were pitching um, the premise of the show. And we had a nice long chat about it. And I guess at some point they decided I might actually have some sort of insight to contribute. And they said, okay, we were going to send you an episode and look it over and then give us some feedback and the rest is history. So we sort of started working collaboratively ever, uh, ever since then. Wow. Do you remember what episode it was that they sent you? The pilot. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. They sent me, um, if I'm thinking back long and hard enough, they sent me the pilot with the full uh, script to review. And I went over it. Then we had a couple long phone chats. Um, and I think I at one point talked with the writer's room over a Skype meeting before we all were forced to video chat all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and they were actually pretty significantly into the pilot and they kind of went, okay, um, you're really vibing on all the things that we want to talk about. Let's, let's drop some notes and let's see if the show gets picked up and if it does. And then inevitably when it did, they called me and they said, you know, do, do you want to work on the show? And I said, is this a rhetorical question? <laughs> Absolutely. So um, that's yeah. All the way back to the pilot. Wow. I mean, you are, in my opinion, really living the dream. I am, I am living the dream. I am very fortunate that they are giving me the opportunity to work with them in doing this. And I, the show could only speak to me more if we find out in the next episode that Tom has like really bad skin and burns easily. Otherwise, uh, yeah. So no, it's, I'm very, very uh, fortunate to have the opportunity to work with such incredibly creative people. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So I have also seen in a part of my little quote unquote background check. Should I um, be nervous? Okay. <laughs> that you were a part of a, a special news report called Healing Childhood Trauma. Yes. Yes. Um, where you talked about, you gave this perfect overview of the nervous system that honestly, I wish that I want to talk to all of my neuro professors and everybody and just say that, you know, you're 20 different true or false multiple choice questions could have been so much easier. <laughs> I get um, it. Yeah, yes. it's, and part of the difficult perspective is in order to sort of provide the knowledge at that level, you sort of have to understand it at this level, which is breaking through the ceiling and, and proving that you know this, that's the frustrating part. Exactly, yeah. I think that is one of the toughest things about being a clinician is having this much knowledge, but you have people who know, you know, maybe like the word stress and you need to break it all the way back down. That it's is, a, of, it's, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. Nope. I was going to say that that is where your true, you know, your true code switching really shines through. Yeah, absolutely. Code switching. Um, every, I mean, I, we don't need to operationally define code switching for your audience, right? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I hope not. <laughs> okay, good. Um, no, so that's, that's one of the things, one of the challenges that I really like about what I do now mm -hmm. is that there's so much science, so much research, so much neurology, so much psychology behind everything. Um, and, you know, the joke of it is like, it all sort of happens up here in the black box of your head and then it yeah. spits out as a behavior. Yeah. Um, but the challenge, what makes it really fun for me is taking information, whether it's test findings, background history reports, et cetera, and integrating it, synthesizing it, and then making it digestible and accessible for the audience. And it's, it's a great frustration when I occasionally get a referral and somebody says, I know that I'm here, but I have no idea why. I don't know what's going on with me. 
And then by the time that we're done, I get to see at least a little bit of awareness or I've given them some resources where they can dig a little further. So that's, um, that's one of the great, really rewarding qualities that I've been able to find in my work. But if you're doubling back to the healing childhood trauma um, yes. piece, okay. Yep, where you talked about, you know, the nervous system and especially toxic stress. Yes. Which I can tell is, I mean, you've written an article on it. This seems to be a big area of interest for you. And it's, I was, it's one of our, and yeah, exactly. It's, it's sort of like my subclinical interest level. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I was wondering how, I mean, I'm assuming because of who Malcolm is as a, as a character. He's had a little stress. Yes. He's had, he's had just a little, you know, stress with multiple different things. It's almost kind of complex in a way how it's sort of built up and it's changed over time. And I was wondering how you how much or how often you're consulting on Malcolm's toxic stress and even Ainsley's as well. So uh, I'm going to stick a pin in the Ainsley one a little bit sure. just for the yep. sake of, I know I'm, I'm going to assume at this point in time, everybody's up through episode 206. Mm -hmm. um, and we can, we can sort of revisit everything that's happened in the sphere of the show up until that point. Yep. Um, and I'll, you know, character development from there on out is off the table, obviously. But, yep. <laughs> you know, the, the fun thing about this, um, and I don't mean to make, you know, make light of people who have serious traumatic issues. Yes. But the thing that's really um, a good cognitive challenge for me is that they started off with this grand idea. He's going to have these issues, X, Y, boom. And then how do we make that evolve over time? And what's amazing is just again, the writers, the writers, the research they've put into this, what they understand, what they know. I'm, I'm taking exactly zero credit for the work that they are doing. But the way that they've had these characters evolve over time, they're following sort of the exacerbation of various symptoms and watching how as one symptom, whether it's conscious, interact with the subconscious thing and a physical manifestation of a psychological phenomenon and how it sort of can erode the relationship between the two and how that as these things compound more and more over time without release, the pressure can build and then subconscious or repressed, you know, things can begin to manifest themselves in an uncontrolled mm -hmm. or an outward way. And I, I mean, I feel like they all need to be hugged. Just be just like, yes. where did they, where did they get all of this from? Because they're yes. doing it so well. Mm -hmm. um, but there has been some talk. A lot of times they'll say, well, we want um, this character to do that or this character to that. Does this make sense? Yeah. And then I go, first of all, yes, it does. You're brilliant as always. Um, and then here's three paragraphs of nerd talk about why this actually makes sense. Um, and here's the backstory. And here's this neurotransmitter that's going to interact with this way and da, 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 da. Um, and there's been a couple points where we've kind of had to say, okay, you're, what you're doing makes sense, but the way that you have it happening is really not the right way. Mm -hmm. So three pages of blah, 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 blah. And they go, cool, we'll switch two words and now it works perfectly. Yeah. Um, so it's really, again, that's the level of kind of a little pinch of this on that, um, but really providing the, the extra boost of, here's why everything that you want to happen will work perfectly. And here's why that's going to happen. Or here's why it actually can't work like this, or you can get it to that point, but you have to go through this pit stop to get there to make it make sense. So I like that you are able to have this, you know, sort of back and forth communication with the writers and say, I like where you're going. 
here is one little reroute that I would take with it. And then the fact that, as you've said, it's as simple for them as changing two words. You know, you give them all of this and they're able to just say, oh, perfect. This is actually not a huge conundrum that we need to go back and rewrite yeah. 20 pages. We just changed two words and perfect. There's been a couple points where I feel like, I, so they will, they'll send a script um, in various iterations and I'll read it down and then I'll stop and type my note, then move on to the next line and type my note. Um, so it really like my notes to them actually read a lot like a conversation. Sometimes I'll say, oh, page 14. I can't believe you're going to do this. Oh, page 16. There's the payoff. Ha ha. Good job. You know, mm. um, but there's been a couple points as where they've done some kind of bigger, more technical things across the course of the season. There have been phone calls and they say, all right, we have to make this happen what's the way and sometimes it's been a big scene payoff and sometimes it's been such a little you know we've we've had six phone calls and it's been a you know six frame nugget mm-hmm. um but this the fact that i know people such as yourself and other people who are medical providers who watch the show and go you know by and large they're that's what it looks like that's the way it should be that's the right medication. That's the mm-hmm. right procedure. Oh, he described the pneumothorax perfectly. Oh, he did that procedure the right way. Oh, that's exactly how that poisoning should look. Um, that's, you know, you watch television shows and I, this was one of the big, I wrote notes the first time I had a full chat with the writer's room and talked to, um, with Chris Fiedak and Sam Sclaver. And they were saying, okay, you, we, we cannot teach a graduate course in every episode. We have to make it look like it's supposed to look good on TV, but also it needs to be as realistic as we possibly can get it. It needs to be digestible. And I revisit that every time I'm in my head writing a note, like what's the way, it's not an opportunity for me to tell them why they're doing something wrong. It's an opportunity for me to go, here's how we can manifest what you have dreamt of. And by the way, they really don't come up with wrong things very often. No, no. Um, and when I say wrong, I mean like, oh, you need to tweak that medication or move, yes. you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but just facilitating their creative process and the fact that they're that dedicated, because we watch shows all the time with therapy, with medical procedures, with uh, bureaucracy, with government structure, and we, my, we being my wife and I, and we laugh and say, literally no way on the face of the planet is that legal ethical permissible possible Mm -hmm. and we watch this show and go yeah yeah i mean i get it works has to work on tv but yeah that's that that's it and that's Mm -hmm. the cool thing yes exactly that is something that as someone who feels like they're watching so many different shows with that just that little like critical eye and saying you know could this really this is a show that even when, because of all of the past shows that I've seen, even when I start thinking like, oh, are you going to do this wrong? They, they don't. They don't. I keep searching for something and I haven't found one huge caveat anything yet. Excellent. That, that means they're doing their job right. And the, yeah. the thing that really is cool to me about that also, that could sort of speaks to their authenticity and their dedication to it, is that every now and again, they have an opportunity for Malcolm to be fallible. Yes. Um, And I don't just mean the inevitable not calling for backup part, although we all sort of love that. Um, But when he has the opportunity to throw out that, oh, my profile was wrong, or Mm -hmm. I laid out 
six and a half paragraphs of psychobabble. And it turns out there was a twist for which I had a blind spot because of my trauma, my experience, my proclivity for this and that, whatever. So, you know, the forensic science as it pertains to mental health, there is science behind it. There's literature, there's research, there's analysis, but just like anything, nothing is perfect. And they really show that, that, um, you know, he's a human character and he's doing his best, but he's working through this and he's not impervious to the ego injury, the physical injury, or even the psychological mistake. So that's, that's really impressive to me that they want to make him a human character. Yeah. That's something that I've noticed and that I've pointed out in past episodes too, is that he has pitfalls usually involving cases where the killer or something about the scene or the case touches him emotionally you know we had the episode in season one where there was Isaac the child who ended up being the killer and that was where Malcolm really turned a blind eye all souls and sadists for some reason I'm constantly calling it all saints and sinners which I don't know where so we in this house we refer to it as the Halloween episode but yes yes perfect Um, that was it was an it was a really fun episode for me to work on with them because at one point in time I did write a paper about childhood development into adult antisocial personality disorder. Mm. Um, and sort you know, there was a, a point in time where I was sort of hoping to take my dissertation track into antisocial. And then I realized that was um, not fruitless, but that was more of a career and not a four or five year project. So I sort yes. of had to shift gears. But I wrote some expository work and some literature reviews and put together a really complex um, understanding of how neurologically, behaviorally, sociologically, all these factors can contribute to sort of that adult psychopathy or the proclivity to be you know, dangerous and violent. Um, and the amazing thing to me, and I think this is my blind spot, is that because this is the world that I live in, mm-hmm. you know, I'm jaded and I anticipate these things and these factors. And so many people who don't have the benefit or the curse of being in this world kind of go, no way that would ever happen. No way that's even possible. And you know, mm-hmm. they, they did it. They yeah. absolutely did it. I, you know, I don't know if they ever read it, but I'm sure I sent a copy of my paper to whoever wrote that episode. I'm blanking on it right now, but beautifully written. Um, mm-hmm. And we went back and forth and discussed how this, and then that plot twist you know spoiler for season one that it was him came out of nowhere to so many people meanwhile the one or two people who have very similar you know research work with me were texting me going oh it's the kid right yeah because because of a b and c symptoms that you guys have put out there i'm like okay well you know you've got it but everybody else was kapoosh uh, and that's what made it so that they it was very clinically and methodically laid out um, I think it was a point in the show, again, that same colleague of mine, I just, I'll have to drop her name or she'll probably kill me. And she knows how to bury a body. Um, <laughs> Dr. Amanda Farrell. She texted me because she was live watching it. And the scene where Malcolm burst into the interview room with the bag, she said, oh, the bunnies are in the bag, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> so um, just the fact that they they said, we is this, you know, I have a feeling this is possible. Let's make it possible. And even if it's you know, it's people aren't going to get it. That's okay. We're going to be true and authentic, but people got it. And even if they didn't believe it at first, everything that they put out there is legitimate. They do not, you know, make up stuff and make fake diagnoses and whatnot. They, that kid, 
And kudos to that actor. Oh yeah. Who knocked it out of the park. Yes. Made it so believable. And honestly, threw me for a loop too. That was, the twist was a twist for me. And I feel like it was because I was on Malcolm's side through this whole thing. Like this poor kid, you know, the the father figure in this, I don't really like him. He seems kind of, you know, interesting. Right. And then it was, it was that, funny part when Malcolm goes back to the cage and I felt like just like smacking myself off the head because I was like the McDonald triangle like the the cruelty to animals and all and so I saw that and I was like you know this show like really so threw me how many times are you and I going to say that we speak the same language the McDonald triangle exactly yes, the yep. McDonald triad and so there's been some sort of fairly more recent work that has said, okay, well, there's one point in this triad that we sort of need to throw out a little bit, but those other two, they hold. But the Mm -hmm. fact that McDonald triad is still in the zeitgeist enough that people recognize it. I mean, you saw it exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That continues to be my favorite episode to the, I think sort of shock of a lot of, you know, my other fellow fans who really love, I mean, I'm sure that (laughs) In your in your research on me, you might have seen that I and Angie and Jess, we love Malcolm and Danny. And so, oh, you guys are Brightwell shippers. Yes. Is that yes. the word I'm supposed to use? Is it Brightwell shippers? Perfect, I, perfect lingo. Yes. I'm not cool. So I had to listen to a few episodes to make sure I was saying it right. And I see it come up on the Twitter every now and again. And yeah. I, I, you know, I know that I sound a thousand years old saying the Twitter, but yeah, no, <laughs> I, I feel like Brightwell shipper is the term I'm supposed to use. So yes. literally, you know, no comment on that, but I appreciate your enthusiasm. <laughs> yes. So I feel sort of like I'm betraying them because most people's favorite episode, at least for season one, was the trip, which was sort of the beginning of this whole ship fall. Let's rolling. throw axes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but my favorite episode continues to be the Halloween episode. I actually, I prefer that title because of that twist and because that was just so perfectly done that hit all of my favorite, you know, forensic profiling, you know, bullets right on the head. I mean, it just, everything about it was, you know, it was that to use another millennial term, it was chef's kiss. Perfect. Wow. I just taught my, uh, I taught my almost seven-year-old what that meant just, just this morning. So yes, Yes. I feel very, uh, I feel dirty trying to pick a favorite episode. Well, first of all, I don't want to take ownership and say they're like my children, but I'll say it's like picking your favorite, um, you know, cousin or something like that, because these these episodes belong to the writers. Yes. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm just on the outside helping. Um, But that's, that is All Souls and Sadists is one of my favorite episodes, um, especially in the first, you have to bifurcate season one into part one and part two, basically. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I really also like Q&A. Yes. The back that. and forth and the interplay. Um, and, you know, the procedure, big fan of the procedure as mm-hmm. well. Oh, yeah. But, um, when we start to see things about Ainsley in that episode, but oh, what Tom did in alone time and silent night in that arc you know i'm just gonna start naming every episode now so let's just say all episodes are my favorite for different reasons yeah absolutely because every single episode has some sort of interplay with neuropsychology in it and just the way that it manifests itself and i think that that is very telling for to go back to the show for malcolm as well who has 
from the get-go as a child seeing something incredibly traumatic and now he decides to go into a career where that you know really isn't going to go away he's involving himself and for I guess an honorable reason as he goes on to tell us um in the episode I'm blanking on the title but it's the one uh internal affairs where he yes has the conversation with the psychiatrist which I am another great that, plot twist episode yes that was also another plot twist that I was not <laughs> picking up on but again the writers all of you um just well, so looking there's a really interesting time. character trait that um that Malcolm has that I think is very similar to what a lot of our and I'll tell you like my colleague and I were doing this wellness and burnout research for years yeah. and then like you said wham we all got coveted and all of a sudden the spotlight is like hey what where are the resources and we're going oh uh we better really start making this accessible quickly because people are gonna so i have to brag on my colleagues here at the college of medicine there's a colleague of mine um who has started a, a department wellness committee and then we've actually been running some studies about the impact of burnout and fatigue on providers in multiple different um uh, multiple different divisions of the hospital and disciplines of medicine so we can better understand what contributes to provider burnout um, mm -hmm. and then helping to take that sort of responder vicarious trauma that you talked about and putting that out into firefighters paramedics etc but the other element of that and I'll come back to the Malcolm character trait is that saying things like okay well we need to talk about vicarious trauma for forensic providers and instant instinctively people think of detectives police officers but now we've got, we need to widen that into crime scene techs, yes. analysts, lab techs, morgue techs, uh, pathologists, interpreters, um, cleanup crew, anybody mm -hmm. who's remotely associated with a violent or traumatic incident has the potential to be exposed to trauma. So when you think about it from that perspective, it really widens the catchment net of what we need to be able to provide. Yeah. But the character trait that Malcolm has from such an early age is that he sort of is very, he's very drawn to that which traumatizes him. Yes. And there's some really interesting psychology behind this. And I'm just gonna go ahead and assume that the writers already were doing this and we're just, you know, um, but the, the one theory of that sort of keep your friends close and your enemies closer, mm -hmm. if he gets right up next to it and plays an active part in sort of perpetuating it, it never has a chance to be stagnant and really manifest. And that's why he sort of yearns for cases and murders, because if he can continue needling it, it never has a chance to sit still within him. Yes. And we see even in the, the very amusing episode beginnings where he sort of is going about his daily routine, doing his yoga, whatever, the things that we would all do to, do to sort of relax and de-stress, you can tell Tom and Malcolm have this sort of, they just seem on edge because they're not like they have to sit with themselves. Yes. They're forced to think about it and they can't distract themselves by being close to it. And it seems paradoxical, but it's very, very much what we see in a lot of providers who go home and feel upset, depressed on edge, but feel better when they're back in the arena where they are in a heightened sense of, sense of awareness and they are experiencing that adrenaline rush. And it makes no sense until you've lived that experience and then you yes. can get it. Look yeah. at Malcolm who needs a case and needs a murder because that's what he thinks makes him level-headed. Yes, so yeah. So he's 
barreling towards disaster. Mm -hmm. Especially now that we know that he has not been going to therapy for quite a while. I mean, I am just, (laughs) that is constantly bugging me and just thinking this poor guy needs to really sit down with a therapist and just get all of this out. You mean you don't think the forensic setting group therapy one session was enough for him? I think it is beneficial, but it is not completely what he needs. It is a very, I will call it a waterproof band-aid. Oh, compared that's to, good. Yes, compared to what he really needs. He needs and we have like used that before. Gone. We said kind of band-aid on the dam or finger in the dam. It's not really, it's not the solution. No, yeah, because most band-aids, they fall right off the second that you even touch hand sanitizer or even go near it. So no, it's a it's a waterproof band-aid, but what he needs is perfectly wrapped gauze with some very nice medical tape and, you know, like a nice little cushion and some very good quality TLC <laughs> from an approved provider. Oh, how good was Martin's, was Malcolm's therapist though? <laughs> so that was also something I wanted to get your opinion on. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what do you think of Gabrielle? Um, Therapy is tough to put in front of people because therapy is different for every person. Oh, yes. So there's as many different ways that you can represent therapy as you can represent people on the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, So inevitably, whatever they do in the room, in that situation, face-to-face is going to strike a chord with someone and somebody else is going to say, that's not what therapy looks like. And we sort of danced around this and said, well, this is interesting because she's got all the toys and she's been seeing him forever. Is she a lifespan therapist? Is she a pediatric therapist? And really what it comes down to is the crux of therapy. The real impactive mechanism is the relationship that the patient has with the provider. Yes. So we're going to go out on a limb and say the magic of television is that for their relationship, she made an exception and just became his lifespan therapist. Um, But a lot of the insight, you know, you need a therapist and a client to be a really good match for each other and their interactions, it just, his physical presence in the room, Mm -hmm. she was able to deconstruct him. He was able to get comfortable very quickly. I mean, that comes from knowing each other for 20 plus years. Yes. Um, But he walks in the room and gets instantly comfortable and able to discuss elements of himself. And she really pulls from some genuine psychoanalytic. She peppers in a little Jungian. There's a little family systems that gets in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really sort of the insight-based therapeutic practice that plays to him. He would not be the type of person who would take well to a cognitive behavioral approach because oh, he God, would be no. trying to outwit it right at every possible <laughs> yes. turn. Yep. So he needed to be provided with an opportunity to analyze and scrutinize and sort of unveil different personality characteristics. And that's what she really was able to provide. She was that, that tabula rasa and that sounding board that he could, um, could give to him or that she could give to him. And that's, I, I liked it. I think sometimes you see therapy on TV and it's used as, as a gimmick. Mm-hmm. or it's used as oh we're going to plow through a trope and fix your problem in 15 seconds and it was very clear that she could sense he had 75 layers of pain and that it was not going to be fixed anytime soon but he accepted that that was a safe relationship and I think that the way they played it was very realistic if one's yes. going to push the other's going to shove and that's the way I think 
the scene that you're thinking of is the same one that I'm thinking of. And if I remember, it's the one where he, he receives the advice and then leaves her office and we do a musical montage of him walking down the street, trying to be chipper and upbeat and scaring everybody. And he bumps into Eve and they plan the date. Yeah, it was beautiful. And, and to again, praise the cast, but to praise Tom, the way that he played uncomfortable with happy mm-hmm. in that scene and the way that you could see him walking down the street going, oh, I have to show a positive emotion. What's a way that an awkward child would try to smile? And it was, we were rolling at how well he played it. I'm going to get Angie and Jess very excited when I say this. And this is, this is not any type of spoiler. I just feel like I should throw them a bone on this. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, everybody in his life, his own family is generally kept at arm's length. But for some reason, he reaches out and he has such a good working relationship with someone else who has such a personal experience with trauma. And that's why when he and, and Danny are interacting with each other, I really should say when the actors and actresses are working together, but the characters will say yes. they play so well and their scenes t- together. And I can't imagine the amount of work that, that those two performers had to put in to get to that relationship. But the way that they play off each other is so understanding and compassionate and so much is said when nothing is said. Yes. That it really shows that there's something there. And even if it's not a romantic relationship, which will break a lot of people's hearts if it's not, I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, <laughs> but there's something in just their relationship that they get each other on some level and they can continue to function. Yes, they can be very personal with each other. And especially after the trip when Danny told a little bit about her past and everything that she went through and that Malcolm was so understanding of it and the way that their relationship platonic or not has built off because of that if he you know if he's not going to therapy at this point I'm glad that he can be honest with somebody right. <laughs> yes right. and Especially- that he has this he has such a great father figure too and I don't I don't mean Michael Sheen <laughs> although I love Michael Sheen Yes. And I'm stealing his fashion. I bought, you know, a cardigan to, I want to be like, but, but in, in what Lou Diamond Phillips is doing in that role, at, oh my he God. just, to be that father figure that, um, that Tom's character has needed mm-hmm. and he can be that accessible and he can be literally on call for him. Uh, I mean, rarely do I see an ensemble cast where the episode can shift so significantly and so quickly and you're just enmeshed in personal versus crime of the week. And they yes. can do that, snap your fingers and you're, you're totally bought in. There's no setup needed. It feels like you're interacting with a good friend. Mm-hmm. But watching the way that the characters are playing the shift between the personal and professional and they're getting the vibes of, I've worked on a team with you for five years. I know when something's up. I know when what's going on. And I mean, these guys have known each other for for two years and they're acting like they've been working major crimes for a decade. Exactly. Yep. And it, again, it's a credit to the actors and the actresses that they are able to show that to us so well. Yes, absolutely. So in terms of you being a technical advisor, I'm curious if you tend to get consulted more on the cases and the killers, or is it more the personalities of the characters and you know their behavior and their mindsets where do you say you generally tend to give more feedback the answer is yes <laughs> perfect um, <laughs> so the relationship 
the way that we the way that we operate back and forth is they you know I, I receive a copy of this um, really an outline first, mm -hmm. um, and they sort of say, okay, this is where we're going to go. Would you look at the outline? Tell us if we're sort of headed in the right direction. And sometimes it'll be say, oh, we really want to make this happen and that happen. Then the script will come, and I'll read it down. And I have taken the approach, and hopefully this is the way, I mean, it seems to be working. Hopefully this works for them too. But I will read it through and then just whatever's happening on the page, I'll give them my thoughts, my rationale for that, et cetera. Sometimes that takes the shape of, oh, what you're doing here, this character should be played in this way. This is how this emotional reaction should look. Or because he doesn't have the capacity for this particular emotion. The lines need to be delivered in this way. Mm. Sometimes the feedback is, ooh, that word doesn't jive with his knowledge level, his education. That's not a word that people in this arena really typically use. Here's a, a catchphrase that a lot of people pick up on. Here's mm. a buzzword that people use, et cetera. Sometimes it takes the direction of a writer will reach out and say, hey, I'm writing an episode a couple weeks in advance. Here's what I'm thinking. Let's spitball some ideas and how do we, does this play, does that play? And then even on another time, it's just taken on a pure technical. We want this medication to play. We want this mechanism to work. How does it, is what we're going to do physically possible is what we're going to do medically possible you know we want adresa to drink from the poison glass at the funeral home hotel right <laughs> yes. okay how do we walk that back and make that work and what will she have on hand and what will da, 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 da. right um and it's just a highly tech so it ranges um and it's a really good challenge for me i don't pretend to know everything mm -hmm. um not even remotely close um but knowing sort of where my background is coming from, I feel like I'm able to sort of reach out and organize the thoughts and information of them a little bit better to support them into getting where they want to go faster than if they were just, and also sort of going, okay, I know Google says this, but in reality, it's, that's what this means. Um, so it depends. I'm, I'm always happy to offer. And we did spend a lot of time early on really building the, the character traits and the personality profiles and has, and sometimes I read a script and I go, you don't need me because you've done it for a year and a half and you know, and you've nailed it. And mm -hmm. I get very scared that they're just going to say, all right, thanks. And we're going to, you know, we're done. Um, but just the, it, it speaks to, again, the strength of that room and how well they've really been able to put together the complex characters. So um, they, yeah, I, I, it's whatever they need. I'm here for them. Do you feel like you have done more with this season compared to the last season? Uh, it's hard to say. I, I'd like to say that I'm putting the same amount of energy into it, which is 100%. <laughs> um, but I think the real answer is the two seasons are very differently flavored. It's yes. like one season is a beef dish and one season is a chicken dish. And mm -hmm. you can't say that you're putting the same type of prep work into it. You know, the first season had one very clear overarching plot line and then subplots that played in and out of it and character development and boom. And then the second season, you know, the big reveal at the end of season one, um, how does that play? And then what's the new progression and evolution of that psychological trauma? And now that we know more people have deeper complex issues, how do we peel that back and dig into a little bit deeper? So 
I don't think it's one season was more, one season was less because they're so different. And again, mm -hmm. no spoilers, this season's not over yet. So I can't really say whether or not there's more work or less work to come. Let's just say we're halfway there. Just in case the writers of the EPs are listening to this, I'll just say, just have faith in them. That's yeah. all I'm going to say. Just mm -hmm. have faith in them. Oh yeah, 100%. Really, the fun, so I will, I'll, I'm going to tease my wife a little bit who I should preface by saying she's smarter than I am in every stretch of the imagination. Um, she, very early on when we started this process, I said to her, do you want to sort of talk that you have any interest in this? She goes, I'm all in on the show. I don't want to know a single thing about it. Don't say a word. I want to be. And so we watched the first episode and she said, okay, tell me what happens. And I said, no, no, no. <laughs> you wanted nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. So the entire first season, watching it develop, watching it play. Oh, how much trouble I was in Christmas 2019 mm -hmm. when we took that break and Malcolm was in danger and we were traveling to New York. And she said, what's happening? What's going to, I, I, sorry, you wanted nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, so when we got to the end of the season one reveal, man, was I in trouble. Um, but the cool thing is, I imagine it was like what people felt when they watched The Sixth Sense. Um, and yes. I say I imagine because The Sixth Sense was spoiled for me and I'm still bitter about oh, it. I know. I'm so sorry for like, you. <laughs> like opening weekend for a guy who had a burgeoning you know, interest in psychology. I went into school on Monday and my friend said, oh, well, you know, I won't even spoil it now. But he said, oh, well, here's the plot twist. And I was like, well, that there goes that. Mm -hmm. um, but to then, but where I'm getting is my own trauma aside, when you see that incident at the end, and I'm being very careful just in case nobody's seen it. Mm -hmm. I don't know who wouldn't, but <laughs> you see that happen at the end of the first season. And then you go back and you go, wow, they really kind of dropped the, the breadcrumbs for this. Yes. the whole way through yeah but where were we we were so mm -hmm. deep in these other things that and that's when you realize oh no this has so many levels of complexity and they are they have fleshed this thing out yes yeah and i i know that you had said earlier to put a pin in the whole ainsley thing to which i'm i'm reeling myself in because i there is you're I'll right just say <laughs> this yep Ainsley may or may not be in future episodes. They may or may not address that plot line. There you go. Okay. Because- uh, But credit where credit is due to Miss Sage because, and I've not yes. met her, so I will say Miss Sage. Um, I hope to because she's amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, but the way that she is playing the heck out of this character- um, It's unbelievable. Well, everybody Just on this cast, and I mean, she- I did not know her work um, before seeing this show. And I was oh, really? like, oh, I hope she does okay. I, I mean, how much time do we get to watch TV in graduate school? I yeah, didn't know true. her work. I knew um, Ms. Young's work. I should say Ms. Young, but I, you know, go back and see her on Broadway mm -hmm. um, in the life in sort of yeah. like the mid to late 90s. I mean, ever since then, when I was a, a very brief theater geek, and I was, you know, I could sing you that soundtrack right now mm -hmm. and just going like, I'm going to follow that. And when I saw that she was on board with this, I said, well, we've got, this is top notch casting. Um, yeah. And she's, you know, everybody's killing it. What can I say? All right. Yeah. To sort of wrap things up, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Oh boy. Okay. These are very similar to the ones that Angie asked Nathaniel Bloom, but I have varied a couple to fit 
you personally. You're testing my response inhibition is what you're testing. Okay. Exactly. There you go. All right. Last book that you read. Uh, the Tao Te Ching by uh, Lao Tzu. Very interesting answer. I never would have. Great answer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's perfect. All right. Favorite movie. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> Ghostbusters. The original? Absolutely. All right. I have no problems with the remake, but yep. the original, those are my psychologists. That was, you know, the probably the first movie I saw in movie theaters as a kid. So yeah, Ghostbusters. Favorite sports team? Uh, University of Tennessee Volunteers, all sports. Individual sports, Baltimore Orioles baseball. Awesome. Clinical or research work, or should I say academic work? <laughs> if anyone that I work with is listening, academician, but uh, <laughs> clinical. <right>. Good question. Ah. <laughs> Marvel or DC? I just finished the Marvel movies. That's how far behind I am. They were my treadmill watching. I just finished uh, Endgame a week ago, and then we plowed through WandaVision. So Marvel. Yeah, I have I've yet to watch WandaVision. Every time a new episode comes out, I know that I need to finally pick up on this show. But oh, I think that... <laughs> they're phenomenal. But in case anybody's wondering, just you can't watch WandaVision if you haven't watched basically all the other ones. But, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing is you need to do that like more than a Lord of the Rings marathon. You need to do that week-long marathon of every single movie in order to get just a fraction of any of the spinoff shows. We got the treadmill. I put the TV down there. We hooked up the streaming and I just walked my way through the Marvel universe. Coffee or tea? <sighs> Both coffee. Nicholas Endicott or John Watkins? <sighs> That's a good question. Yeah. My wife has peeked her head in the door and she's trying to answer it as well. <laughs> she says Watkins, I say Endicott, but that might only be based on the fact that I know Dermot Mulroney plays the cello. There's there's the actor's name. There's the it. actor, yes. <laughs> Perfect. Again, I want to thank you so, so, so much. My pleasure. This has just been an awesome, you know, we were we were talking shop, we were... As Martin says, we were talking turkey. It was, right. yeah, <laughs> it was perfect. Thank you so much for this Absolutely, my pleasure. You guys love the podcast. I should not say you guys, that's that's not proper. Um, you people, you everyone, you ladies, whatever, however anyone identifies. <laughs> um, but again, big hi to Angie and Jess. And if you guys need anything else, if there's anything else comes up, just please give me a holly. This was a blast. Absolutely a blast. Absolutely. Yeah, this was definitely for me a once in a lifetime kind of interview and I would love to do it again, especially Stop. after we get more info on Ainsley because I have just so many, so many questions about that character that we can. Oh, I'm yeah. scoffing. I'm not scoffing at let's do it again. I'm scoffing at once in a lifetime. I have never been described as once in a lifetime. And I think I'm only coming off that way is because you don't know me that well. Um, but we will. <laughs> I, I'm more than willing to uh, to get to know you guys a little bit better as the as the show goes on, and hopefully, you know, we'll get you know a couple more seasons to really play this out. Yep, yep. We're gonna manifest it. We're not gonna we're not we're gonna, gonna whiteboard it. 
We're going to yep. put it out there. Exactly. Yep. Going to make a big, huge poster, hang it over my ceiling, my, my wooden ceiling, Every look at it every night. Yep. All the hashtags, renew prodigal son, hashtag prodigal son, et cetera. Yes. Put, put exactly. it out there in the universe. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's for everybody who's listening or watching. Please use all the hashtags. Please give this show the attention that it so badly deserves. Absolutely. All right. And we're going to leave it at that. We will see you guys for the next episode. And thank you again, Dr. Anger, for joining us.